This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Elena Gomez, CFO of Zendesk, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 510. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. We are now more than six months deep in 2019. And we have so far brought you 50 different CFOs during our 2019 season. We thought it's time to reflect back on some of what those finance leader guests shared, their insights, their stories. That's what we want to bring you. So here is our first highlight episode for the 2019 season. I think you'll agree there's something very powerful when you put the voices of finance leaders side by side while addressing the topics that are top of mind in finance today. We will begin in 30 seconds after a few short words from our sponsor who makes CFO Thought Leader possible. We'll be right back after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hi, we're back. As some of you might recall, we spoke to Steve Cakebread, CFO of Yex, during our first quarter. As we spoke to Steve, I know I was struck by how his finance career actually parallels the rise of Silicon Valley. Again, he uh, he began at Hewlett-Packard. He spent uh, two decades at Hewlett-Packard, uh, but it goes from the desktop era to the uh, workstation era, Silicon Graphics. Steve jumps to Autodesk. He's at Salesforce. He's at Pandora. So he's even in the streaming era. So he has this extraordinary career that just bumps into every uh, sort of innovation chapter of Silicon Valley. Enough said there. What was also interesting, though, he was actually the the chief strategy officer at Salesforce during those formative years when it's fine-tuning its subscription model, it's fine-tuning that renewable revenue model, putting that in place, and it was just too good an opportunity for us not to ask him uh, to reflect back and help us understand how that model has evolved to today. Here is Steve. Sure, that's a great question. You know, when we started at Salesforce, I mean, subscription models and the accounting around it were somewhat unknown. In fact, it 
was my team and Salesforce and myself that went to the SEC to talk about amortizing commissions, for example. Because the, at the time, it was common when you paid a sales rep a commission, you expensed it. Obviously, in a subscription model, you're amortizing your revenue over the life of the contract. And I'll get into my comments about 606 in a minute, but at the time, you were taking down a 120,000 deal of recognizing revenue at 10,000 a month, which was required by GAAP and which makes all the sense in the world. But you were also required to expense the commission, which you typically paid at the time the contract was signed, in the month you paid it. Well, like I said, I'm kind of good in accounting, but as I remember back to my basic 101 accounting class at Berkeley, it said you got to match revenues with expenses. So we put together a whole white paper on how the commission amortization made a lot more sense to reflect the actual activity of the business and its results as opposed to expensing commissions up front. And that got the model started in terms of um, sales commissions and what what component you could capitalize and amortize versus what you should expense. And you know, we spent a lot of time um, with the SEC and, quite frankly, Ernst & Young, our auditors, wrote a preference paper to our white paper that said, yes, they believed it was the right thing to do. I found that kind of odd because, like I said, I learned that in Accounting 101 at Berkeley. So the controversy was a little bit weird, but we got through that and started that process. I think I think what's hard is not all businesses, while we all try to be subscription businesses because we all know the multiples on Wall Street are higher, they're not all attuned to subscription business. But you can make them that. For example, at the winery, you know, we have a club. You, you know, you spend a year, send us the money for $1,000, and we send you bottles of wine. To some degree, that's a subscription business. So you need to be a little bit clever about creating that subscription business. Clearly, it makes it easier to run the business because you get cash. You can predict that cash, and you know what your revenues are going to be. So there's some real power in that model. As it's transitioned, people have used it for different ways, but I think it gets back to doing the basic concepts of you buy a subscription, you amortize it, you get sales commissions, which is your variable cost against that revenue, and you do it. In today's era of 606, I think there's a little bit of strangeness that the accounting people are putting in where you have a contract, but I might expect you to renew that contract, so I'm going to amortize commissions over your expected life rather than the actual life. Yeah, I think that's a little bit strange, but, um, you know, that's what GAP requires these days. So I, I think there's around the fringes people are trying to intellectualize it a little too much, and um, I hope that at some point in the future we'll all realize that maybe we made it too complicated, even for our investors, and just go back to when you have a contract, you have an obligation. That contract's over a period of time. You recognize your expenses and revenues over that period of time. If you renew it, so be it. And if you don't, business is over. So. Um, I have enjoyed working in the subscription model. There's nuances that it's really important for the finance organization to both understand and make sure the business people in your business understand it too because the subscription revenue model means every day counts. Every dollar of every day counts, and every decision that you make that delays a contract for a day costs you revenue. So we have a saying at Yex that every day, every dollar, every decision we have to make happen. It's not show up at the end of the quarter. And yeah, software is quarterly driven, but in no business I can figure out how to get in November for our quarter than January.
As our listeners know well, we like to ask our guests to share a finance strategic moment. Sometimes they just pop up in the discussion before we even ask them, and those are often the best ones. And uh, last February, we spoke with Sebastian Martel, who is CFO of BRP, a Canadian company based in Valcourt, Quebec, a manufacturer of snowmobiles and watercraft recreational vehicles. Throughout our discussion and never prompted, uh, Sebastian really relied on storytelling uh, to share his stories and his insights. And I thought this clip was a great example of how it can be done. Here is Sebastian Martel, CFO of BRP. tell my, 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 my team here and, and obviously I have a, a, a good team and I have a young team as well is that the beauty that we have in finance is that we we get to convince the organization we have a powerful tool called numbers and if you know how to take a number and, and just communicate a message with these numbers you can steer an organization in any direction in the right direction but in any direction uh, and so I and I've been fortunate in my career. Very young, I once had a, a, a one of my bosses. He was controller of a pulp paper mill. He said, "You know, Seth, you're going to be a, you're a finance guy. You're never allowed to use the words. I think I believe I have the impression. You always should come up with facts if you want to move an organization or or, or drive change. And I've kind of always used that rule in, in the way I I've, I've interacted with the management team. And one good example of this was. Back in 2010, which is uh, 09, 10, with the Great Recession, uh, we were a private company. We had debt on our balance sheet. We have covenants, etc. And uh, we were discussing whether or not uh, the covenants would be tight, uh, whether we would be comply with our covenants. And some of the organizations said, "Yeah, no problem. We'll be okay." But what I did is I took a few few people from my team. We run financial models, and we indicated as to whether or not BRP would be able to meet its covenants or not. And given that it was challenging in some of the quarters, again, we're looking at 18, 24 months down the road. Here are the actions that we need to do. And had I not done that analysis, I don't think the organization would have made the changes that they had made 12 months or 18 months prior to being tight on those covenants. Uh, and that's an example that the CEO often talks about, saying, well, I remember this meeting I had with Seth late a Wednesday night where he presented me numbers and said, well, here's where it's going to be tight, and here's where we're going to be okay, and here are the actions we need to do. Uh, for him, it's a defining moment in my career, and for me, I assume, given that it's a defining moment in the eyes of the boss, well, it's a defining moment in the way finance was able to have a strategic influence in the decision-making of the business. One of our uh, shorter interviews this season was with Andrew Jackson, CFO of Raw Medical Systems. The length of the episode, I think you'll agree, has little to do with the quality of the episode, and Andrew's responses were excellent. He was just so concise and 
how he worded his answers got to the point very quickly. I wanted to share again just one of his responses, and this is to our metric question, which, as you know, we always like to ask what metrics are top of mind for you and what you're looking at. And like Andrew's other responses, it's short, concise, and insight-rich. like to discover what it is that attracts a CFO to an opportunity. And I guess there's the original perception. Here's what I can accomplish by joining this company and serving as a CFO. And then there's the reality. The door swings open and here's what you find. We asked Elena Gomez, CFO of Zendesk, to reflect back for us when the door swung open and what thumbprint she wanted to leave at Zendesk. Here's what she shared. You know, when I came into the organization, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I had to sort of reset the, the team a little bit and bring in, I would say, DNA, new DNA into the organization. But I also had to acknowledge that where we were as an organization, we, we weren't really putting those headlights out longer term. We were very much a what's going to happen this quarter type of company. Uh, and that was through and through everywhere in the organization. And so I really worked hard to try to bring in this concept of a long-range plan. And I remember, you know, some of my peers, what I would say, well, we need to build an LRP. And they were even asking, like, what, is, what does that stand for? Um, and so just the, the, even the nomenclature LRP, that lexicon is now living and breathing in our company, and it's become really the North Star of the company. Uh, and the reason that it's become the North Star is because it's forced the conversation around our strategies that we weren't having before. It was sort of in our CEO's head, or it was in the, the president of products in his head, and it, it lived in in someone's mind, but it really wasn't articulated in a way that the employees could grasp it, align around it, execute against it. And so having a long-range plan, which is something that I really pushed in the organization, has really helped us align our strategy, and it's helped us debate our strategy, um, and it's driven us to define it in a way that can be 
um, cascaded to over 3,000 employees. Um, and so that's been really powerful. And, and the finance aspect of that is just one element of it, but it's been a way for us to marry sort of our financial plan with the strategic plan. Uh, and it's been really good hygiene for us as a company. Is there a piece of that that uh, sort of influences the shareholder, uh, the investor discussion as well, I would imagine? Uh, and is there any challenges there with, yeah, a, I mean, with a, what is a long-term view, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that, um, you know, if you've uh, read up about Zendesk, we have a billion-dollar, um, what people would think was a North Star uh, and we're really resetting that North Star and saying, you know what, um, a billion dollars is a stop on our journey, but the reality is when we look and take the headlights out, you know, two, three years from now, we see ourselves being a multi-billion dollar company. And I, I strongly believe had we not articulated our strategy, our confidence in saying that wouldn't be as high. Um, and so, yes, it absolutely influences what I tell my investors, it influences what I tell my employees, my analysts. Um, but there has to be substance behind it. And I think after, you know, doing it three years, we definitely um, took some baby steps, right? The first year I came, it was, you know, there was not an allergic reaction, but I would say there was some, some subtle resistance. And uh, the next year we, you know, made more progress. And then this third year that I've been here, I think it's, it's really taken a whole uh, life of its own, which is exactly what I want. It doesn't mean... Uh, there's more to do, obviously, but um, it definitely has shaped my external and internal communications. We'll be right back after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Well, there's little question CFO Elena Gomez is not alone when it comes to adopting a long-term view. Many finance leaders are finding it pretty challenging. There are both internal challenges as well as external communication challenges. Uh, during the course of our season, we were pleased to feature Sean Quinn, CFO of Simpress, and have a discussion around this very issue. Sean uh, provided a wonderful overview on the subject of adopting a long-term view. Here's some of what Sean shared.
Um, there's a number of other things that changed over time. Um, if you if you were to look at the way that we communicate externally, that certainly evolved uh, over the last you know five or so years. Our CEO and founder Robert Keane um, every year writes a letter to shareholders. Uh, now that um, is, I think, a, a very candid uh, overview summary uh, from from him of you know, how how we did over the last year. Um, gives an update on where we've allocated capital, where that's gone well, where that hasn't, in pretty you know plain words. Um, and there's a number of metrics that we provide in there too that are kind of a bit unique, and um, and I can I can share a little bit more uh, about that. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll maybe come back to that because I know you wanted to talk about metrics uh, as well. And I'll mention one other thing, which is you know, when um, and this this in a way gets to metrics too, but. Um, you need to have uh, an incentive system as well that's aligned to how you want people to behave. And that's the other big thing, that uh, big topic that evolved for us. I mentioned when I started at the company in 2009, we had a quarterly um, bonus program tied to revenue and, and EPS performance. Um, so, of course, the behavior was you know, very much geared towards, uh, towards what happened that quarter. Um, that evolved o- over time. In 2016, we made a, a fairly significant shift to, uh, in particular, our long-term incentive programs um, to forego some of the more traditional um, traditional incentive mechanisms that companies use, like restricted shares and options, uh, and we put in place a program um, that uses performance share units, um, and I won't go, we, we would probably need 10 minutes to go through the, the, the program, but in short, um, uh, the performance um, the performance hurdles are based on the, the performance of um, our uh, average share price over a fairly long period of time um, six years uh, is the first uh, is the first opportunity for uh, a payout under under this plan um, and it's, it's essentially set up such that um, if our long-term shareholders do very well the people that participate in that program uh, also will do very well um, but if they don't then then there will be no payout so um, so that was that's just one example of the, um, the you know, changes or evolution of our incentive systems as well um, so that not only were we trying to change some of the, the biases or uh, frictions in terms of how we communicate or guidance or other things that might inhibit us being able to um, uh, to, to, to act with a kind of a long-term view um, but also then importantly change incentives to make sure that our leaders were doing the same. Um, and really we're trying to line everyone up to think about um, um, you know, how do we maximize returns on capital that we invest and we'd like to continue to invest a lot of capital if we can have great returns um, and in the end um, have that lead to increases in our per, per share uh, value um, and that's measured over, you know, over many years. You know, I think finance leaders, uh, I mean all leaders, but I think finance leaders uh, in particular this is about over, over, over recent years where um, there has to be a much more strategic focus and that's really expected um, uh, by the rest of the business and um, so, so I think that is definitely true I think that the, the, the focus on you know, kind of short term versus long term that you sometimes see covered in the media and stuff is coming more from the shareholder community um, recognizing that um, there's some behavior that is uh, sort of inherent in the in the in the process and just the the way of the way of the world today 
um, that's not healthy, and um, and that we need to, we need to change that. Um, and uh, you know, you, people like Larry Fink, who's the chairman of BlackRock, and of course Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon, and you know all, all these other names um, are kind of leading the charge on that. And even if you read you know Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters every year, um, there's no shortage of you know very successful but very long-term focused um, names out there that are trying to bring this to the forefront. And I think they're trying to do that um, on behalf of the um, the investment community and on behalf of in, investors that are entrusting their capital with these organizations to make sure that um, uh, people are really looking at long-term returns as opposed to you know, just trying to um, you know, jack up the share price over the next couple of months. Uh, because as we know, the share price, you know, all share prices go up and down, but that's not really an indication necessarily of After we discuss what it is exactly that attracted a finance leader to an opportunity, we like to find out what their first order of business really is. And similar to perhaps Elena Gomez, Glynis Bryan, CFO of Insight enterprises assessed her organization and quickly put in motion what steps needed to be taken to move finance to that next level here's what glennis shared with us Expertise, 
um, the BI team is a bunch of brainiacs and uh, mathematicians and data scientists who who actually look at data and make sense out of that data and report based on the dashboards back to the business. Um, we've upgraded with tools that are, you know, how we attack collections. That's a core part of what we do because cash is king in any business. Uh, AP has been streamlined. So across the board, we've actually looked at all the areas within finance and how we can streamline the core base operations that are the normal part of a, a finance accounting organization and then added on additional capabilities that we leverage and I think the business acknowledges now is a significant help to them as they try to determine which direction, which project to take and certain ROI analyses with the tools that we've given them to do that on their own. But the finance function went from, went from being not a partner to the business to now I think being a significant partner to the business and gets kudos all the time with regard to uh, the reporting and the analysis that we can do on a pretty tiny, quick basis to respond to questions. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.